What a provocative question. How many of you would like to do it over again if you could start again as a baby? Even as Mike asked that question, I thought, how would I answer that? You know, there is a part of us, if you've lived a life at all, where you stop and you say, boy, if I could do it all over again, then, and then we start filling in the blanks with what life would look like if we could do it all over again. But of course, the reality is that if we could do it all over again, we would probably just make the same mistakes or perhaps even do it worse. That's where God's providence comes into play. That's where God's goodness comes into play within the context of our own life. Even as Mike said, we're going to be looking at this concept of providence today. In a moment, I want to define it and I want to contrast it and really compare it a little bit with the concept of sovereignty because I think both these terms are going to be important. But before we even get there, let me just quickly share that Sherry and I are thrilled to be part of Palmetto. Uh, We've been involved, even as Ken said, in both local church ministries and in Christian university and seminary ministries. And I'll simply say this, as much as I enjoy the classroom and as much as I enjoy that seminary and educational setting, the promises of God are that he is building his church. This is what God is doing. This is the center of his work in this generation and in this era. And so there's actually, there's nothing more exciting than gathering together with God's people on Sunday because his promise is that he will be in our midst. And so we're thrilled to be a part of that. I was thinking even as we were driving down, uh, the last time that Pastor Sam actually asked me to preach in a church that was actually in this part of South Carolina. He and I were in grad school together, and he was having a particularly busy week, and so he called me and said, can you preach for me? And I said, sure, I would love to. We were working together in the same church, a little church in which the entirety of the leadership were all made up of graduates or individuals in grad school at Bob Jones. All right, so all the leadership was under the age of 30. It was like a bunch of kids having fun who had no idea what they were doing. But we had a lot of fun doing it and watching God do good work through that process. So Sam asked me to preach, and I remember sitting on the front row with him, and right before my time came, he leaned over to me and he said, before you preach, that woman over there is going to sing. And that was not part of the schedule. And I, and I, I whispered to him, I said, she's going to steal four minutes of my time. And he says, okay, you can just go along. She got up. And she sang. And after she sang, I realized that really no one wanted to hear me at that point in time. They just wanted her to keep singing. After that particular service, there was a guest family in the church, and they actually came up to us. They didn't know either that woman or myself, and they said, you two make a really nice couple. They assumed that we were married. (laughs) And I stopped, and I said, honestly, I said, I don't even know who she is. Uh, And they smiled, and they said, well, you, you should fix that problem. Four months later, or several actually, about four months later, uh, that girl who sang didn't only cost me four minutes, uh, she actually cost me the price of a diamond ring. And uh, 30 years after that, she's cost me a lot more. (laughs) But it's all been a wonderful investment, best investment I ever made. Now, I share that not with the mindset of I'm looking for a second wife now, okay? So I don't expect anything post this service. 
one is wonderfully enough. But I share it simply to communicate that God at times will bring together events within our lives that are utterly unexpected. And when those events take place, there has to be a spiritual sensitivity to God's control that then shapes our response to the next steps. Let me give you a little bit of a listening strategy this morning. What we're going to do this morning is I'm actually going to tell a story. It's going to be a biblical story, and to a certain extent, I'm going to frame this biblical story in a 21st century context. As I tell this story, many of you will begin to identify exactly the Old Testament text I'm referring to. And I, as you identify it, feel free to turn there. Then we'll move the story from the 21st century back into the Old Testament context. And after we get to the end of the story, I really want us to stop and ask the question of what are we supposed to learn from this story? What are the lessons for the marketplace? What does this story communicate to us that impacts the way that we live when we leave this facility? That's our goal. Mike gave a, a good definition, a practical definition of providence. Let me build on that just for a moment. Let me actually share with you the Heidelberg Confession. Within independent churches, we don't use a lot of confessions, but I think there's, there's a place for them. Let me define for you the Heidelberg's confession definition of, of providence. Simply reads as follows. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them, leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, and this is the key, not to come to us by chance, but by his fatherly hand. God's sovereignty It's his divine authority which allows him to rule all of creation because he is the creator. His sovereignty provides authority. His providence is the outworking of that sovereignty. He defines what will happen by way of his sovereignty, his control. His providence is the way that he carefully enacts that control in the individual details of our lives. Now, with with that in mind as a framework, let me just share a story. I was saved, actually, my freshman year of university. I didn't have a Christian background, and so for me to learn Old Testament characters, it was all new. So I'm just going to share the story of an Old Testament character. And again, as you recognize the story as it's framed in the 21st century, feel free to turn there because that will be our text this morning. The story is of a young lady in her late 20s. I'll simply call her Rosa. She was from Mexico, from a very poor family. She didn't grow up really with any privileges or any particular opportunities. As a matter of fact, she was just a simple, hard worker. Yet at the same time, Rosa had dreams like everyone else. She wanted to meet a nice man, have a family, have children. She just wanted to be normal. 
At 18, she met a young man named Kyle from the United States. His family had actually moved to Mexico to work. Now, Kyle wasn't particularly good-looking, and his family, too, was relatively poor. Sorry, Kyle. (laughs) Kyle actually struggled with sickness. But you know what? Rosa loved him, and he loved Rosa. So they got married. For 10 years, they lived together in Mexico. Mexico. Her loving his family, his family loving her. When Kyle was healthy, he was a farmhand. When he was sick, she worked and worked hard to support them. 10 years went by, and it was a good 10 years, but at the same time, it was a hard 10 years. They tried to have children, but God in his providence never allowed it to happen. And each day and each month and each year passed by with the sorrow of barrenness. And really of all pains, that was probably the most significant one because within Rose's culture, barrenness was not an accepted norm. It was embarrassing. But at the same time, Rosa had Kyle. She had his family and she had love. As they were nearing their 11th anniversary, Kyle got sick after harvest. This was not particularly unusual, but this time the cough lasted a little bit longer than normal and sounded a little bit deeper. The fever rose, and the fever didn't subside. On day four, doctors were summoned. By day seven, Kyle's body was like a furnace. Nothing could cool him down. By day nine, Kyle lost consciousness. On day 12, he died. On day 14, Rosa buried him. At 18, Rosa had bright hopes for her future. She desired a normal life in which all of her dreams would be fulfilled. But now at age 28, she wakes up to a nightmare. She has no money, no children. She's just buried her husband, and from her perspective, all is lost. Her closest friend, Nancy, who's actually Kyle's mother, now wants to leave Mexico and go back to be with family. She was a bitter and she was a frustrated woman. She lost her husband, and now she lost both of her boys. From Nancy's perspective, God was dealing unfairly with her. He was waging battle, and from her perspective, she had lost and she knew it. So she packed a few belongings that she had and she headed back across the border to a little town in Batesville, Texas. Her faithful daughter-in-law followed her, bereft of Kyle. She really had no other place to go. Upon arriving in Batesville, a family member allowed them to stay in the room above the garage. They really couldn't provide food, but they could use the room as long as they needed it. It was August, end of harvest, In Batesville, Texas, temperatures outside were 100, and inside they were in the 90s. They were sweltering, but Nancy and Rosa had nothing, and quite honestly, Nancy Nancy was too depressed to even care. Rosa, knowing that she had to do something to earn money, went out to seek and find a job, but unfortunately, she was an illegal. She had no options from a permanent position. So she did what other illegals were doing. She made her way to the freeway. 
She recognized that there were individuals that were outside and they were picking up bottles and they were picking up cans and they were picking up trash. And perhaps she could make enough money just by picking up trash that she could provide for herself and for Nancy on a daily basis. When she got to the freeway, she noticed that she wasn't alone. Several illegals were out there making their living by picking up cans. And really, each one of the locals had claimed their own territory. So she was shuffled along from location to location. Finally, she came to a portion of the freeway that she thought might be particularly fruitful. She asked one of the men if she could join them, and he very hesitantly agreed, as long as she stayed behind and only picked up what everyone else had left. She agreed. At 18, Rosa dreamed of a good life. Now, at 28, she was picking up cans along the side of a freeway on foreign soil. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. All right, who are we talking about? Turn, if you will, to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. We actually just finished chapter 1. We're going to pick up the story of Rose, and from a biblical perspective, we'll name her what her name is, which is Ruth. She finds herself as an illegal, in essence, picking up cans along the side of the road. All hope is lost. As we begin reading in verse 2, we get a sense of its placement within the totality of the book. And really, this book is, though it is named the book of Ruth, the focus of the book is primarily Naomi. In chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, Naomi, as she makes her way back to Bethlehem, cries out and she simply says, The Almighty has dealt harshly with me. He has done me wrong. And interestingly enough, she simply says this, I went out full and I've come back empty. Now you have to imagine this for a moment when you're reading this particular story. When she says, I've come back empty, who is standing right beside her? I mean, here's Ruth, this young Moabite girl who in loyalty of heart has committed herself to follow Naomi. And now Naomi has just declared that she's come back with nothing. And you can just imagine Ruth kind of standing there and looking at all these foreigners in the city of Bethlehem and saying, hi, I'm, I'm empty. I am the one not even to be noticed. And not only not to be noticed, I am a Moabitess, a foreigner within your land. And really, the rest of the book is framed around Naomi's accusation that God has dealt harshly with her. From Naomi's perspective, God owes her provision, he owes her protection, and he owes her progeny. He owes her the next of line. And right now, she has no male protection, she has no provision, and she has no line to follow after her. God has done me wrong. Right, that's where chapter 1 ends. So we pick it up in chapter 2. We have four different scenes that are developed. And again, what I'd like to do is just walk through those four scenes. And we're going to make careful observations about what each one of the scenes communicates. And then at the end, we'll see if we can bring it together with some lessons for the marketplace, with some lessons for us today. When we pick this up in chapter 2, we realize there are four different scenes. The first scene is really verses 1 through 3, and that's Ruth's entry into the marketplace. The second scene is 4 through 7, and here is the report of the foreman. 
the man who's actually guarding the property. And then after that, we have Boaz's interaction, the response of Boaz in verses 8 through 17. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, Ruth comes back and reports to Naomi everything that she has seen. All right, let's just begin, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, and walk through each one of these scenes. The author writes, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Notice several things here. Number one, Ruth is taking initiative. And the initiative that she's taking is actually to enact the Mosaic law of going out into the field and gleaning. Now again, this is so far outside of our context. Just quick explanation of what's happening here. Bethlehem would have been a small city at the time, probably less than 5,000 people. All of them would have lived by sake of protection within the city confines. And then outside of Bethlehem would have been all of these fields that would have been divided up with stones so that everyone knew where their particular field was. On this morning, Ruth, recognizing that she needed to do something, walked up and said, let me go out and let me function as a gleaner. And the Mosaic law allowed for foreigners and for widows to be gleaners within the field. Now, a gleaner could not gather among the sheaves. So you would have the harvesters, and they would be gathering the wheat. And remember, we're coming out of a time of famine, chapter 1. So, so grain is going to be incredibly valuable, and Moabites are going to be considered incredibly invaluable as far as the culture was concerned. But Moabites still had, or but Ruth still had the legal right to go out to the field. And her specific role was to stay behind all of the gleaners and to pick up anything in the corners of the field that perhaps was left behind. That's God's gracious love for the foreigner and for the widow. Some level of provision was, was available to them. So, Ruth makes her way out to the field. And and the text is very interesting because it highlights throughout the text. And as as we read through chapter 2, I want you to note that almost every single time Ruth is mentioned, she is defined as the Moabitess. You see this in verse 2. You see it in verse 6. You see it again in verse 21. Matter of fact, in verse 6, the foreman is going to respond, and he's actually going to define her as a Moabitess twice. The reason for doing that is to remind us all that she is an outsider. So, Ruth goes out, and her initiative is rewarded. And I love the way that it's actually framed here, where it says, she happened to come to the part of the field. That little phrase, it, it, it could be translated, she chanced upon chance. And again, if you imagine the context of the fields, Every field looking the same. The only level of distinction is going to be stones on the ground. And as she's walking around, she just happened to come upon the part of the field, cross the line into the field of Boaz. And again, obviously what the author is doing here is there's a level of irony here. 
And that irony is going to be developed through the course of the story. How much of this was just pure chance? And how much of it is the hand of God? That's really seeing one. Ruth takes initiative. And she takes initiative. And as she goes out into the field, she happens to come to the field of Elimelech. There's a second scene. The second scene actually begins in verse 4. And we'll read it. It says this, And Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back from Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came until she had continued from the early, and she has continued from the early morning until now, except for a short rest. All right, so Boaz just happens to come out to the field on that particular morning and goes to the foreman and, and looks around. He recognizes everyone except that young woman. And he simply says, who is she? And the foreman says three things about Ruth. Number one, she asked permission to work in the field, something that legally she didn't have to do. She had the right just to walk into the field, but she extended a level of courtesy by saying, can I be in the field? Now, there's some nuance here because he actually says, she's a Moabitess, she's a Moabitess, and she actually asked to be with the gleaners. And there's a sense within the, 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 the tenor of the story that the, the foreman simply said, no. You can go behind the gleaners, but you can't be with the gleaners. In other words, this Moabitess came and asked for permission for an advantage position. And I put her in her place. She worked hard. She's been here all morning. But right now, she's about ready to go home. And that little phrase at the end, except now for that time of rest, really hard to wrap our hands around that, exactly what's being communicated there. But I think the tone of the chapter, and something we'll, we'll point out, out in just a moment, that in essence what's happening is Ruth's about ready to leave the field. She came, she was told what she could do, she worked hard all morning, and yet at this point in time, she's taking a rest and is about ready to leave the field. All right, that's scene two. It's the report of the, of the foreman. Now Boaz kicks into action. We'll pick it up with our next scene. Look at verses 8 and 9. And look how Boaz responds. Then Boaz says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughters, do not go to glean in another field. I'll just pause for a moment there. I think what's actually being communicated here, and there's a strength in the verbiage, where he's simply saying, stop leaving. Don't walk away. You stay right where you are. Don't go to another field. Then he continues and he simply says this. Now listen, my daughter, again, do not go to another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink, that, or, and drink what the young men have drawn Right, Boaz's response, he gives four benevolent commands. 
Just look at the benevolent commands in the text. Number one, as we've already noted, don't go and glean from another field. Do not leave here. Ruth, you stay right where you are. Don't cross over those stones. Command number one. Command number two. You stick close by, by my servant girls. You've asked if you could be with the gleaners. I'm giving you permission now to be with the gleaners. You stick close to them because I want you to get the good grain. And I want you to watch the men. Know where the boundaries are and stay within those boundaries. Number three says this. Follow after my men with no fear because I have ordered them not to touch you, not to mistreat you. This is actually going to be an important observation. We see that Boaz says this. I've told them not to touch you. If you look a little bit further down in verse 15, once again he says, do not reproach her. Do not rebuke her. If you look a little bit further down in verse 22, Naomi actually tells Ruth, don't go to another field lest you be assaulted. Right? The, 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 the phrase here is literally this. Boaz tells his men, don't hoot at her. This is the first sexual harassment policy that we find in Scripture. This is the boss looking at the men and saying, stop it. Stop saying things to her. Stop looking at her inappropriately. Stop hooting at her. And this is obviously a significant problem because it's mentioned four times through the course of the chapter. Four times you stay in this field because no one will assault you here. Now, we might stop and say, why? You have to remember, Ruth is written during the time of the judges. And during the time of the judges, every man is doing what's right in their own eyes. There's two other stories that are at the end of the book of Judges. Both of them center around Bethlehem, Judah, the very location where this story is taking place. And both of them note the lawlessness of the land. Rusa Moabitess. Moab comes from the ancestral relationship between Lot and his daughter. They're known for trying to seduce the Israelites when they're coming up out of, out of Egypt. So everything about a Moabitess is bad news. And everything about, about Israel at this time is lawlessness. So when Ruth leaves her home, she's taking a risk. And Boaz recognizes that risk and protects her with words of comfort. It's the third command that he gives. There's the fourth command that he gives. And the fourth command, I can't help but think, he's taking a little bit of a jab at his men here. The fourth command is simply this. Drink from the water that my men will draw for you. Now again, you have to understand the, the, the context of the culture here. Number one, gleaners are not allowed the privilege of the water of regular workers. Their responsibility, if they wanted something to drink, is to go back into town and get your own water. Number one. Number two, foreigners do not drink of the same pot that Jews do. She's a Moabitess. Number three, women draw for men, not vice versa. So when Boaz says, my men will draw water for you. These same men that were hooting at you, 
will now provide for you. Those are incredibly gracious and benevolent commands. That's scene number two. Let's continue with the story. Next part of the story is Ruth goes back to work. And lunchtime comes around. Let's pick it up in verse 14. It says this. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. Which, by the way, I'll park just for a moment here. When it says she has some left over, she actually put it in her pocket. This is her own personal doggy bag. She put it in her pocket. And we know later in the chapter that when she goes home, she pulls it out of her pocket and she gives it to Naomi. So even as she's been working all day long, in the back of her mind, she's thinking about this bitter mother-in-law, and she's going, I want to make sure that I provide for her. So she eats until she's satisfied, puts some in her pocket, and then we'll continue. Verse 15, and when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed the young men, saying, now he's speaking to his workers. Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull some out from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Wow. Do you see what just happened there? Several things. Boaz's actions toward her and Boaz's actions then toward his men. Toward her, he says, you come here. Don't sit on the outside. You sit beside the boss. You eat the bread. You dip dip your bread into the wine. In other words, you have permission to use the condiments. I'm going to give you the good stuff. Here's the roasted grain. And I'm going to give you enough that you can actually put some in your pocket. Then he turns around and he looks at his men and he says, here's the deal. She started in verse 6 as an outsider. In verse 8, she becomes a poor insider. In other words, you can glean from behind. In verse 9, she becomes a favored gleaner. I want you to move up in the process. By verse 13, Boaz actually changes his verbiage and says, you're no longer a servant, you're my servant. In other words, you are one of my girls now. And I love what he does here. He now gives her a job with benefits. She goes from a complete illegal alien, verse 1, to a fully employed, fully benefited worker within Boaz's workforce. And at the end of the day, we're told that she has an ephah of grain. That's roughly about 22 liters. That's a lot. How much is it? Well, we're told later in the chapter that she actually works for seven weeks during the time of the harvest. If she got 22 liters of grain every single day for those seven weeks, she would have enough food to take care of two people for an entire year. I'll simply suggest to you, Boaz knows that. He's a farmer. He knows exactly how much she needs to be able to provide for her family for the entirety of the year, and he is framing her provision in light of her need. Something that, quite honestly, she wouldn't even be aware of. But he knows, and he provides. 
verses 18 through 23, now Ruth comes back and Ruth simply reports everything that happens to Naomi. All right, that's the chapter. Got the story? It's a wonderful story. It's a story of a Moabite girl who starts with absolutely nothing, who at the end of chapter one is defined as the empty one. And by the time you get to the end of chapter two, not only is she not empty, but she is actually the one who is providing for her mother-in-law. And all of this happened in the course of one day. One day. Right now, the question for us this morning is simply this. What are our lessons for the marketplace? What are we to learn from this particular story? What are we to learn from one farm worker's day in the field? Because that's really what this is about. All right, let us give three lessons for us this morning, and then we'll flesh these out in our context. Lesson number one is simply this. God's providence and man's initiative are not intention. God's providence and man's initiative are not intention. God's sovereignty does not eliminate our freedom. It actually creates it. What I mean by that is simply this. We must not formulate our understanding of God's providence in such a way that human responsibility fades away. God's providence actually allows us to move and to walk with the absolute assurance and promises that he will meet us there. But what that means, practically speaking, is this, is if we expect God to work on our behalf, we must be willing to take initiative and to work. Again, we go back to verse 1. Ruth saw a need. Ruth had the strength to meet that need, and Ruth was, was within her legal rights to do so. So what did she do? She did the next right thing. Just practically speaking, have you ever felt paralyzed as it relates to which way God is leading you? Have you ever just stopped and said, Lord, I just feel absolutely lost right now about next steps. And if you would just be so kind as to write it in the sky, and if you could write it in the sky, then I would have absolute assurance that that's what I'm supposed to do. Or perhaps we can be even a little bit more spiritual than that, and we can do the old way of doing our devotions where we kind of open our Bible and say, all right, God, what do you want us to do? Here we go. And we just point our finger and we say, God, just, just divinely direct my finger. God's primarily, primary modus of the outworking of his providence is not to direct your finger to just the right text. It's to direct your feet to the right responsibility. It's to do the next thing. When we look at Genesis 24, Eliezer, the, 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 the servant of Abraham, as he goes out looking for a wife for, for um, Isaac, he simply says this, I being in the way, the Lord led me. In other words, as I am moving out and fulfilling my responsibilities, God is directing me. David says the same thing in Psalm 37 where he says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and though he fall, he will not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hands. So one of the, just the introductory lessons that we can learn from this story of Ruth is simply this, is that God's providence and man's initiative are never intention. The expectation that God has for us in all matters of life is to take the next step forward. 
as Ken mentioned, I spend a lot of time in college ministry, and obviously one of the big discussions when you're interacting with 18 to 22-year-olds is the question of God's will. And so you have all of these questions about how do I find God's will? And every single time I I hear that the question phrased that way, I I completely understand the context in which it's being communicated, but there's something internally that I just cringe. And I normally respond by saying, you don't have to find God's will. It's not lost. God's never lost his will. All you have to do is you follow God's will. And how do you follow God's will? You live in obedience to what you already know that's provided within his word. And you fulfill those responsibilities. And as you fulfill those responsibilities, God will providentially open up the next step when you need to know. And by the way, sometimes you'll never know. Did Ruth know the significance of being directed into the field of Elimelech? Absolutely not. She just took initiative and did the the next thing. Sometimes we will use the term that I'm waiting upon the Lord. And we use that term as, as if it suggests some level of inactivity. I was doing a a Bible study one time in a home and we were addressing this this biblical concept of waiting on the Lord and so I asked a series of adults and and their families were with them. I said, so what does it mean to wait on the Lord? And immediately, a little five-year-old by the name of Spencer, his hand just went straight up. And like any good pastor, I kind of looked at them and I went, all right, a five-year-old, should I even ask? You know, if I ask, you know, who killed Goliath, maybe, but waiting on the Lord, I'll just kind of wait on that one. And so I, I was kind of looking for an adult, and Spencer was just like, no, no, here I am, here I am. And finally, I'm like, Spencer, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? And he looked at me, big smile on his face, and he said, we went out for dinner tonight. And we went to a restaurant. And we had a waiter. And that waiter ask us what we wanted. And then he took our orders. And then after he took our orders, he brought us our meals. And then he he filled our glasses with beverages. So what does it mean to wait on the Lord? It means to get God everything that he wants and to serve him. Out of the mouths of babes. When one looks at the concept of waiting on the Lord, particularly through the context of the Psalms, it never communicates inactivity at all. What it communicates is actively taking the next step in life to serve. And as one does so, they do it with the absolute confidence that God is a father who will never lose his children. He is a shepherd that will never forsake his sheep. He is one who is cognitively aware and compassionately aware of your need to know what the next step is, and he will make that known. If you're looking for that job, looking for that ministry, looking for that spouse, looking for that answer. God's aware of that. And he meets those needs in his time. It's the first outworking of this principle that God's sovereignty and man's initiative are never in tension with one another. There's a second. 
And the second way that this gets worked out is simply this, is that God's sovereignty does not eliminate risk. It actually expects them. Four times, as we've noted within the the text, the reader is reminded of the risk that Ruth is taking. Ken mentioned just briefly in the introduction that one of my desires is to see young people in particular, really individuals of all age, take the next step in ministry, particularly as it relates to international service. I know we could spend a lot of time talking about the needs in the mission field right now, and I'll simply say that we are at a critical point in time. Critical. The number of missionaries that are leaving the field, the number that have been forced off the field via COVID, the, the very small number of individuals that are stepping up to take them place, their, their place, we are at a time where we are in desperate need of individuals to step up and say, here am I, send me. But what I've noticed is that the landscape of conversations within the course of the last 15 to 20 years has drastically changed. It used to be when you interacted with someone as it relates to missions, uh, particularly with 18 to 22-year-olds, they'd say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing, I'm praying about it, we'll see what God wants. Now what you hear is this. You hear them say, you know, Brian, I, I thought about it, but my parents said I'm not allowed to. What? Yeah. There's 1.6 billion Muslims out there. China is moving back to the days that are more stringent than Mao because of both greater technology and greater financial funding. It is dangerous to be in China now, and that's a country I've been to some 50 times. It's a different world now than it was. Europe is spiritually dark. Plus, you know what? There's no money in missions. The risk to serve the Lord are far greater than the rewards. I don't want my child doing that. My child needs to stay close to home. I want access to my grandchildren. I'm fine with them going to a good church. I want them to go to a good church, but stay safe. Sometimes what we want is we want God's providence within our lives to be risk-free. Lord, I'll take the next step, but before I take that step, you need to assure me that that step is in my best interest, that that step is safe, that that step is going to be protected that the results and the rewards are going to be tangible. God's providence, his sovereignty and human initiative are not intention. But his providence and his sovereignty include the necessity of steps of faith. And what he provides for us is fear not, When Christ sends out his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, as he gets to the end of his commissioning, five different times he says, fear not. Just read verse 28 and 29. He says, do not fear those that can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body 
Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And are not one of them, I'm sorry, and, and, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, because you are of greater value than many sparrows. What Christ is doing here is he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's simply saying, if God can take care of a sparrow, if God can count the very hairs on your head, he can certainly take care of you. Take a faith-filled step. Take initiative. It's not in contrast with God's providence and God's sovereignty. It's not intention. I think that's the first lesson we can learn from Ruth. Ruth takes a step of faith, risk included. Second lesson we can learn is simply this, is God's providence is always in accord with his grace. God's providence is always in accord with his grace. If you go through the totality of this chapter in verse 2 and verse 10, verse 13, verse 19, and verse 20, you will see a repeated theme, and the repeated theme is that Ruth is looking to find favor. Ruth needed mercy. Ruth needed grace. Ruth needed someone to take notice of her. Ruth needed divine favor. And because of that, she moved out into the field. By providence, she chanced upon Boaz's field. And yes, she met opposition. Yes, she encountered hardship. She had to pause and rest, considered leaving the field, but she persisted in the path that God gave her. And the result of that was grace and favor. Stop and think for a moment. We've already noted, she starts the day as a complete outsider. Within a matter of hours, she moved from an illegal alien to a favored maidservant. Within weeks, she becomes a married woman. Within months, she becomes a mother. Which, by the way, after 10 years of barrenness, she becomes a mother. Within generations, She'll be known by her offspring, King David. Within millennia, she'll be known by her offspring, Jesus Christ. Ruth is one of three Gentile women that is mentioned in Christ's genealogies in Matthew 1. God's providence is always in accord with his grace. God's sovereign leading is always in accord with his divine favor. God will always bring about the right results at the right time. But again, so many of us, when we view this, we say, well, Lord, I'm all about the tangible rewards of trusting you in grace. But we also have to understand within the context of the chapter that the famine of chapter one is God's grace. The barrenness for those 10 years is God's grace. The fact that Ruth was left destitute is God's grace. We cannot separate God's tangible rewards that we desire from those challenges of life and somehow suggest that some are evidences of God's grace and some are not. The reality is, is that within his providence, all of his work toward us is his gracious outworking. The cancer, the death of a spouse, 
the challenges of a child. Financial limitations. All of those are God's work of grace. Let's go back to the Heidelberg Confession. Let me just read the middle of it. So that he rules leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all by his fatherly hand. Lesson number one is simply this, is God's providence and man's initiative are not intention. Lesson number two is that God's providence is always in accord with his grace. He always pairs them together. And then finally, lesson number three this morning is simply this, is God's providence is at work during times of seeming silence. God's providence is at work in times of seeming silence. Let me just phrase this in in a simple way. When nothing is happening, something is happening. When nothing is happening, something is happening. Let's go back and ask ourselves this simple question. What was Ruth doing on the particular day that absolutely changed her life? And the answer is what? She was going to work. That's what she was doing. And this is where the story becomes so fresh to me. Because that's where most of us live. On a daily basis, we go to work. On a daily basis, we fulfill our responsibilities. And days and weeks go by seemingly without any distinct movement from God on our behalf. And it is so easy to grow discouraged. And it's so uh, simple to wonder whether God is actually doing any work on our behalf. Perhaps God is so focused on the major events of the world that he just doesn't have time to give consideration to me. I mean, certainly, we've got massive things that are happening in China. We have earthquakes that are happening. We have, we have men that are serving the Lord in significant ways. And who am I? I live in upstate South Carolina. I'm a farmhand. I work in construction. I go to the office every day. I, God doesn't really have time to focus on me. Yes, I want his attention. I desire his favor. I need his mercy. I want to experience his providence within my life. But the reality is, is that God is just too busy for that. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like God is working in the life of someone else? And yet your life just has this big vacuum of silence within it? Just pause for a moment. I want you to consider the book of Acts. Acts covers 30 years of church history. But if you actually read the book of Acts, the totality of all the events that are communicated in the book of Acts really are less than about 300 days. So 30 years is roughly around the 11,000 days. Acts gives us a sense of what's happening in about 300 of those. So my question is simply this, is what's happening in the other 10,000 plus? You know what's happening? Peter and Paul are going to work every day. And as they're going to work, within their sphere of influence, they're reflecting the glory of God. And you know what God is doing? He's turning the world upside down through it. He's turning the world upside down through individuals and local churches that are simply going to work every day and doing the next right thing. Friends, that's where most of us live. We live in the mundane Can I simply encourage us this morning? God has not forgotten you. 
God's intent is not on the mountaintops of your life. His intent is in the valley. God knows exactly what's happening in your life at an individual basis, just like he took this little Moabite farm girl and he led her out into the field and by his grace, he nudged her into a particular field. And that little divine nudge changed the course of her life and changed the course of history. Did she know that at that time? No. But when nothing is happening, something is happening. God is working. And God is so intently engaged in your life that he'll never allow a sparrow to fall, a hair to drop without his knowledge. Because he loves you more than that. Friends, this morning, take heart in this little story. What this story encourages us with is the reality that we can take faith-filled steps of initiative, trusting that God will sovereignly and will providentially meet us in the way. He won't leave us alone. Two, you've got to believe that God's sovereignty is always in accordance with his grace, that the will of God will never take you where the grace of God will not keep you. You say, Brian but you don't know what I'm going through right now. Will my spouse ever be the person I desire them to be? Will I ever even find a spouse? Oh Lord, I don't, this job is so unsatisfactory for me. Lord, I, you gotta trust God's grace. You gotta trust his favor. And you do so by taking the next right step. And then finally have the absolute confidence to know that when nothing is happening, something is happening because God is not at rest on your behalf. He has not forgotten you. Ruth chapter two is just the story of a little Moabite convert who models for us a trust and a very personal God. And by doing it, change the course of history. We can have that same trust because we have that same God. Let's pray.